0: It was my sophomore year of high school that I started my very first job. I worked at Coldstone Creamery in Longmont, Colorado. And it was a fun job. It was creative. I liked the people that I worked with. It was kind of high-end ice cream. We looked down on Dairy Queen as the lesser of the ice cream establishments. We didn't have soft serve that was beneath us. And I held that job for a few years. And if you've ever worked in food service, you know that people who work in food Food service They don't stick around for a very long time. Most of them don't make a career out of it. I remember I was working one shift with this other guy, and he was in the middle of making an ice cream, and he just stopped, and he looked up, And he took off his apron and he just walked out the door. He had just reached this breaking point where he could not make any more ice cream. He was done. And every job has this sort of breaking point where you admit to yourself, I don't know why I'm doing this anymore. Maybe it comes in two years or maybe it's 20 years. But when it does come, you have to either find a new job or retire. But what do we do when we reach that breaking point with God? What do we do when we get to that place where we have had enough and we can't do it anymore? Where do we go then? Jonah is a very curious book. It's not quite clear at first glance what it's about. It's hard to see what it's getting at. And I think because of that, we reduce the book of Jonah down to the story about Jonah and the whale, kind of in the same way the mom whose kid fell into that gorilla pit at the Cincinnati Zoo a couple months ago. She will no longer be known as Michelle, but she will get reduced to the mom who let her kid fall in a gorilla pit, when there's so much more to her than that. And there is so much more to Jonah than just some encounter with a whale. Jonah was God's prophet who did things that Jesus called the sign of his coming. But Jonah was also someone seriously disappointed in God. Jonah was someone who felt let down by God over and over and over. Jonah was angry. Jonah had had enough. Jonah had come to this breaking point where he couldn't do it anymore. I don't wanna tell you the story of Jonah. You've heard that before. I wanted to share with you Jonah's story. Jonah was a prophet, and as God's prophet, your job is to pass along God's message to God's people and guide God's people in the direction that God wants them to go. But Jonah is a prophet during a very difficult time of Israel's history, because in the time of Jonah, Israel had already had a couple hundred years worth of very evil kings, each one more evil than the next, and year after year, they have led Israel farther and farther away from God. So Jonah is probably spending most of his time warning these people about what will happen if they don't cut it out he's probably quoting things like Deuteronomy 28:15 through 19 saying but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall your basket and your kneading bowl be. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. But the thing is, even though Israel is walking farther and farther away from God, God is blessing them. In the time of Jonah, Israel's borders are almost as large as they ever have been. Back when David and Solomon were king, Israel is in a season of wealth and prosperity. And the things that Jonah is saying will happen just aren't happening. And if I was Jonah, I would kind of feel like God was being the fun dad because when you're God's prophet, you're kind of partnering together to parent his children. So Jonah's like the mom at home whose kids are just running wild. They're tearing the house apart. They're painting on the walls. And then the dad comes home from work and he walks in and he says, hey kids. And this whole time, Jonah has been saying, just you wait until your father gets home. You're gonna be in so much trouble. And the dad says, who wants ice cream? And they all get in the car and they go for ice cream. And Jonah is left there feeling unsupported and hopeless and betrayed and abandoned. And after years of this, Jonah is a very old man. And Israel starts to realize that the things that Jonah says will happen don't happen. So his reputation as a prophet has gotten very low. People don't listen to him anymore. And then God says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell them I don't like what they're doing either. And Jonah says to God what prophets don't get to say to God. Jonah says no. And he gets on a boat and he gets as far west as humanly possible. During that journey through a series of events, God convinces Jonah to go back to Nineveh. So he makes this two-week journey back to Nineveh. He walks inside the city, and he gives the shortest, most hopeless message imaginable. He says, in 40 days, you will be destroyed. He doesn't say, you guys have 40 days to get your act together. He says, I just wanted to let you know you're going to die. And then he leaves. And Nineveh does something very unexpected by their own initiative because Jonah didn't even give them the option to repent. Nineveh decides to repent. They put on sackcloth. There's a citywide mandate that no one can eat food or drink water. They fast. They even stop feeding their livestock in the hopes that this God that is going to destroy them will spare them. And God sees this act of repentance and he spares them. And Jonah watches God once again not do what he said he was going to do. And Jonah is furious. And he says to God in chapter 4 of Jonah, verses 2 through 4, he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee for Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. You would think as God's prophet— Jonah would be thrilled that an entire city just turned away from evil and towards God, but this makes him angry. For years, Jonah was in Israel, telling Israel about the coming destruction that God never brought. And now here in Nineveh, he told them about the coming destruction that God never brought. And Jonah says, I knew it. I knew you were going to do this. I knew it before I even got on that boat. I said it because you always do this. You did this back home and you're doing this now. You let these people off the hook when they are going totally against everything that you've told them. What I have told them as your prophet. Well, I am done being your prophet. So just kill me. And in chapter four, verse four, God responds by saying, do you do well to be angry? There's something you need to know about Nineveh to understand Jonah's anger. Nineveh is the capital city of Israel's arch enemy, Assyria. They have been at war for a very long time and Nineveh has a reputation for capturing Israelites and forcing them to fight against their own countrymen as slave soldiers. They behead Israelites. They strip them naked and impale them on stakes. And Jonah just watched God after years of savage brutality towards Israel. Jonah just watched God spare them and he is confused, and he is disappointed, and he does not know what's going on, and we know this feeling well. Every day, when I look at the news, I'm left with this feeling of, God, why are you letting this happen, especially this week? When I see countries and cultures thrive while they become increasingly more corrupt and evil, I'm left with this feeling of, why are you blessing them? How awkward is it as a Christian to be asked, if there is a God, why does he let all these terrible things happen? Especially when those conversations end with, well, if that's how God operates, I don't want to be a part of him. I, I don't want to do that. Right now, it is a great time to be a Broncos fan. They just won the Super Bowl, in case you didn't know, for some weird reason. Maybe you just moved here. Welcome to Colorado. Um, in the United States, you would have known even if you weren't in Colorado. But I started watching the Broncos in 1999, and for the next 14 years, they would not even get a conference championship. And during these 14 years, I started to develop this deep aversion towards the Broncos, because until recently, the Broncos conjured up memories of sitting with my parents as they furiously yelled at the television, What are you doing? What's wrong with you, dummy?" And I truly believe I have some deep-rooted anxiety issues that began from those experiences. They stem from those. And during that time, watching my parents just be miserable, I decided if that's what it is to be a Broncos fan, I'm not a Broncos fan. I don't want to do that. As far as current events go, right now it can be a really challenging time to be a Christian it is confusing and it is disappointing and it is heart aching to watch all of these terrible things happening around the world and in our country and even in our city. But it reaches a whole new level of hurt and confusion when those things happen to you. Jonah, he leaves Nineveh, and kind of like the Grinch, sitting atop Mount Crumpet, looking down on Whoville, waiting for it to collapse in sorrow and sadness, Jonah camps out on a hillside just outside of Nineveh, and he watches, and he waits for God to destroy Nineveh, because he knows that they deserve it. And it's really hot out. We're talking modern-day Iraq here. So God, he grows this plant to give Jonah shade. And in the shade, Jonah, he starts to find some relief. And he starts to be comforted. His spirits are lifted. He starts to calm down. But the next morning... God has this worm just destroy this plant and it withers and dies and the sun is scorching hot and it's beating down on him and God sends this east wind off of the desert to just blast Jonah and he's becoming seriously dehydrated and he is nearing unconsciousness. And he says, it is better for me to die than to live. And God responds to him in verse nine, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. These things that are happening to Jonah, it's clear that God is deliberately the one who is doing them to Jonah. And Jonah knows this and he has had enough. He has spent his whole life faithfully serving God as his prophet. And now from his perspective, God is torturing him, giving him relief just to take it away again. He's probably thinking, why me? I have done everything that you've asked me to. I've even come here. Why are you doing this to me? He's even angry for the plant. Why did you kill this plant? It did nothing to you. Just kill me, I have had enough. I wish that there was this rule where if you lived your life in the way that God wanted you to, that he would spare you from all disaster and hardship. But there are so many examples in the Bible that prove that no such rule exists. Job is probably the most well-known example. Jonah is an example. Every single person who's been martyred for Jesus is an example of this. Sometimes in life, it's when we are honoring God the most with our lives that we get hit the hardest. And those times are really hard to explain. A year ago, almost today, my family and I, we went to Michigan to bury my mom. Less than a year before that, we found out that she had cancer. And when we found out it was stage four, it already spread throughout her entire body and there was nothing that they could do. They gave her six months and she lived for nine and then she was gone. And I cannot explain why that happened. I don't know why God let this happen to her. I don't know why God didn't heal her when we've prayed so often for this to happen. No one in our family brought this on us. All of us love God. All of us have a deep relationship with him. None of us have done anything to deserve it. Then I think about any kids that my wife and I have, they will never know the most incredible grandmother that they could have ever had, and they haven't done anything to deserve this. I wish that I could say that after the fact it all made sense, but it doesn't. It doesn't make sense. I can't explain it. And I know you all have stories like that stories of hardship that don't have a fairy tale ending where the person gets healed or where the person gets saved. Stories like Jonah. Jonah spent years, almost his whole life, serving God as his prophet in Israel constantly trying to convince them to turn away from evil only to watch them become more evil and then watch God bless them. And then God brings Jonah to the worst place imaginable for an Israelite to go, Nineveh, to watch God spare them too. And the last place that we see Jonah is roasting to death on a hillside, And the last words that we hear from him are, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And that's Jonah's story. That's where the book ends. And it's not the ending that we'd expect or the one that we'd hope for. And the thing is, it probably would have turned out differently if Jonah hadn't forgotten something, the whale. Back in Israel, when Jonah got asked to go to Nineveh, and he got on that boat. During that voyage, the storm kicks up, and the boat begins to capsize. And when the crew finds out that it's Jonah's fault that this is happening, Jonah gets thrown overboard. And Jonah starts to drown, and as he's sinking to the bottom, the unthinkable happens. Out of the darkness, a whale swallows him up. And in that moment, Jonah knows that this is not a monster. He doesn't see the whale as some horrific form of punishment. He was drowning. Jonah knows the moment that he gets swallowed up, that God has just saved him. This whale is his lifeboat. And from inside the whale, Jonah prays in chapter two of Jonah, verses two through eight. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my darkness, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple." The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And in the very last verse of this prayer, Jonah has a revelation. We see a side of Jonah that we haven't seen in the rest of the book. He says, but I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah understands justice. This is a concept that he gets. He understands that if you disobey God, you get punished. So when the storm kicks up and it's about to tip the boat over, Jonah knows why. He's expecting God to kill him on this trip. But what he was not expecting while he was drowning was for God to save him. Inside of this whale, Jonah experiences something that up until this point, He wasn't able to fully grasp. Jonah experiences grace. He experiences mercy when he deserved to be killed for what he did. And inside this whale, Jonah, he repents. And he accepts the salvation that God has offered to him in the form of a whale. And he acknowledges something huge. Salvation is the Lord's. Jonah admits That God can save whoever he chooses to save, regardless of what they've done in the past. That's God's right as God, because salvation is the Lord's. Why did God spare Adam and Eve when they ruined his creation? Salvation is the Lord's. Why did God spare Noah's family instead of starting completely over with the flood? Salvation is the Lord's. Why did God destroy all of Jericho but save a prostitute's family? Salvation is the Lord's. Why did God spare Jonah when he turned his back on him? Why did God spare Nineveh after everything that they'd done to Israel? Why did God spare us, sinners, after everything that we have done? Why did God sacrifice his only son to die for us so that we wouldn't have to? So that we could be forgiven and have this eternal relationship with him? Because salvation is the Lord's. But when Jonah watched God spare Nineveh and save Nineveh, he lost track of this. He forgot. Jonah was so angry about what God didn't do in Israel and what God didn't do in Nineveh that he couldn't see what God was doing. And God even tries to explain it to Jonah in chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. The last two verses of the book, God says, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Jonah's in a situation that he can't see because he is so angry. Jonah is so angry that he cannot see that he and Nineveh are the same. Both turned away from God. Both chose to repent. Both were spared. Jonah is so angry that he can't see that an entire city just turned away from evil towards God. The very thing that he was hoping and waiting for in Israel just happened right in front of him and he missed it. He was so angry that he missed that God just did that through him in such a way that Jesus would call it the sign of his coming. How sad is it that an entire city had just decided to turn towards God and they're all collectively asking the question, what do we do now? And the most qualified man to help them is just outside of the city, stubbornly wishing to die. Anger blinds us and it was blinding Jonah. A couple years ago, my wife Allie and I, we went to Disney World, the most magical place on earth. It's not an understatement. It's incredible. And every night in the Magic Kingdom before the park closes, they have this firework show. That's also an understatement because it's so much more than that. It's incredible. So everyone in the park, they gather around the castle, you know, the, the castle. And these fireworks start to go off and music from like your favorite Disney films begin to play and it's in time with the fireworks and they project these things on the castle that make it look like the castle is alive and it's moving and at the very end they play the song When You Wish Upon a Star and Jiminy Cricket comes on and he explains to you that whatever you wish for can come true as long as you have hope and you know it's a total lie but you believe it anyway because it's so incredible. It's Disney World and you go home feeling encouraged and happy and hopeful, believing that anything is possible. And the only reason that I can explain this experience to you in such a positive way is because we went twice. The first time was a different experience. Allie and I, we show up in front of the castle like 10 minutes before the show starts. And we see this large crowd of people sitting down. So we sit down with them. And the show starts, a couple fireworks go off, Tinker Bell comes down the zip line and everyone around us, they all stand up and they start cheering. So we stand up and a few seconds into the show, I hear this angry voice behind me say, hey, down in front. And I just ignore it thinking it's not, whoever this is not talking to me. So a few more seconds go by and again, hey, down in front. And I turn around, shouldn't have done that. I turn around. And I see this angry man with his family with him. He's clearly the the grandfather patriarch of this family. And I look at him and I do one of these like, me? And he says, yes, you, we have been waiting here for an hour. You can't show up 15 minutes beforehand and stand in front of us and block our view. Sit down. And like his grandchildren have kind of become his minions. They're like, yeah, sit down. And I don't know what to do. Like, and everyone else around me is ignoring this man, which I should have done in the first place. So I look in front of us, and we're in this thick crowd of people and uh, like, if Allie and I sat down, we'd just be looking at the butts of the people like all around us, and that's no fun. So, so I turn around and like, even if we were to sit down, it wouldn't change this guy's view at all. So I turn around again, which I shouldn't have done. Should have just kept ignoring him. And as politely as I could, genuinely, as politely as I could, I said. Why don't you stand up thinking this will solve everyone's problems like you'll be able to see we'll be able to see and you'll stop yelling at me and and he doesn't like this at all. He says, oh, seriously, seriously seriously? We have been waiting here an hour, and you want us to stand up? That's it, kids. Let's go. And he takes his grandkids, and they're going, no, no. And he says, yeah. And he points at me, and he says, that man just ruined our family vacation. <laughs> and he walks away, and Allie and I, we hear them crying. And I was furious, I was furious and embarrassed. And long after this guy was gone, I was so angry at this man. And I know that those kids still to this day, remember me as the man who ruined their family vacation instead of their lunatic grandfather who wouldn't just stand up. And so while he's gone, I'm thinking about all these witty comebacks that I could have said when I was trying to be polite. Jiminy Cricket's talking about how if you wish it, it can come true. And I'm wishing that these terrible things happened to this man. My anger completely poisoned my whole experience. I was so angry I could not see what was happening right in front of me with the fireworks and the songs and Jiminy Cricket. Anger blinds us from what we can see. If you are confused or disappointed or hurt by what's going on around you or around the world, you are not alone. I know what that feels like and we know what that feels like. If you are suffering and you are wondering why God is still letting this happen to you, you are not alone. We know what this feels like. But when we let that confusion and that disappointment and that hurt and that discouragement turn to anger, it blinds us. Anger is the blindfold that we put on ourselves. Anger is the blindfold that keeps us from seeing the times that God has had grace on us, even though we didn't deserve it. Anger over what God didn't do is the blindfold that keeps us from seeing what God is doing right in front of us in another city like Nineveh with nearly 120,000 people and also much cattle. Anger is the blindfold that keeps us from seeing not just what's in front of us, but what God is doing in you and what God is doing through you, even now in the midst of your anger. Anger is the blindfold. Because of this, we must never ever forget the whale because we can't miss it. If we let anger blind us, we'll miss it. But we can never forget the whale like Jonah did because the whale is grace. Inside the whale, Jonah met grace, and it softened his angry heart. If anger is the blindfold, grace is what unties it. If anger is the blindfold, grace is what unties it. And we must constantly be untying anger with grace. We must constantly be reminding ourselves of the grace that God has shown us. We must constantly be remembering what Jesus did for us. We must constantly be untying anger with grace. We cannot forget the whale because if we do, we can miss it. Anger is the blindfold that we put on ourselves. And the only place that it helps to have a blindfold is in front of a firing squad. And that was Jonah's intention that whole time. Throughout the entire book, he's trying to get God to kill him because he was done with God. He said, God, I'm done with you. Just kill me, just kill me, just kill me. Maybe you feel like it's too late for you. Maybe you are so filled with anger and you are just done with God. You don't care what it takes to separate yourself. You're just done. You've given up on him. I want to remind you that even though Jonah was done with God, God was not done with Jonah. And God has not given up on you. God sees you and he knows you and he wants you. It's time to take off the blindfold. Let's pray. Father, you can see into the depths of our hearts and you can see where anger resides where we cannot. Father, I pray that we would experience grace. Grace, like that whale, is something that we are most exposed to when we're drowning. It's when we are the most confused and disappointed and hurt that you swallow us up with grace, and I pray for that now, for those who are just filled with anger. They don't even know why they're in this room or why they're watching this video. God, would you fill us with grace that would untie the blindfolds in front of our eyes so that we could begin to see again, so that we could remember the grace that you had on us, so that we could see the incredible things that you are doing. And so that we could see the incredible things that you are doing in us and through us. And Father, as we worship here, would this be an opportunity for us to open our hearts to grace, to let it swallow us up and untie that anger that's over our eyes.